none of these big actors, Hollywood stars came and felt like they were slumming it. They came and they really brought it and they were so funny. Leslie Nielsen with his little fart machine that he would wander around the set and just like <laughs> make these funny noises in between trying to play this horrible killer that he was. And uh, the the Roach stories where we would have to figure out how to corral thousands and thousands of roaches uh, on a set. There was one funny story we had been worried very much. George was worried about what's going to happen for the big climactic scene where Upson Pratt is completely overwhelmed by all the roaches in uh, they're creeping up on you. And the way we were going to do it was to uh, we had thousands and thousands of roaches that had been corralled from Trinidad and from Barbados and all of these places where our roach wranglers went down and collected them all and brought them to the set in these huge tanks. And uh, the way we were going to do it was to dump all the tanks on the set and uh, just get what we could get. Roaches scatter as soon as they see light. And so we knew they were all going to flee. So we had very precious little time to get these shots. And we also had a mandate from the federal government that said, we cannot let these roaches escape into the environment. <laughs> so George and the, and the roach wranglers would talk about, well, how are we going to corral these things? I mean, you know, they don't take direction. Well, the wranglers said, well, here's what we'll do. If you're not squeamish and you haven't seen the film Creep Show, go see this movie. Zombie maestro George Romero directs Stephen King's anthology with panache and wit. He corralled his horror movie hombres Tom Savini and John Harrison to bring to life the colorful panels of this thrilling graphic novel. The climactic ending was orchestrated to make the audience's skin crawl. But filmmaker John Harrison said it wasn't just the audience's hairs that were standing on end. Obviously, the sets were open. We can corral them on the sides, but on the roof, it has to be open because that's where the grid is and that's where all the lights are. So what we'll do is we'll spread Vaseline all around the top of the set so that when the roaches flee, which they are going to do, They'll go up the sides of the walls, they'll hit the Vaseline, and they'll slide back down. And we'll keep them in there until we can corral them at the end of the scene. Okay, sounds like a plan. So George gets everybody ready. The roach wranglers get all the barrels of roaches ready. The Vaseline is spread all over the top of the set. And George calls action. We dump the roaches. And there they go. Thousands of them spreading out, trying to flee this set and all the lights. Up the walls they go. They hit the Vaseline, and they go right over it, out into the rest of the stage, and gone forever. <laughs> Vaseline didn't keep one of them in. <laughs> uh, so um, if you're living in Monroeville, folks, and you find a big roach that doesn't look like it belongs in the U.S., that's probably a descendant of Creepshow. <laughs> George wanted to be a movie maker, plain and simple. He never set out to become the godfather of zombie movies or the hero of horror films. But he loved making horror movies. And he never regretted making hordes of monsters that would give him a comfortable life and a successful career. 
So let's batten down the hatches, turn the lights down low, and find the closest blunt object as we prepare ourselves to enter the mind of the horror movie legend. Welcome to A Life Lived. I'm Stephanie Okupniak. George Andrew Romero was born on February 4th, 1940 in New York City. His father was an artist and his mother was a housewife. George would often rent film reels and bring them home for the family to watch. His tastes varied, but he was one of the few young men who was drawn to grandiose opera films like The Tales of Hoffman. You would think that a guy that essentially created the modern zombie myth and is known for so many horror films would uh, would be completely conversant and an expert in that genre. And in fact, he wasn't. His favorite film, he will tell you, was probably Tales of Hoffman by Michael Powell and Emmett Pressburger. When he was a young man growing up in Brooklyn, he and Scorsese used to compete for getting the 16 millimeter print out of the library so that they could go watch it at home. The Quiet Man was another film that uh, George would talk about all the time. He loved the score for it. You know, his tastes were, I guess you'd say eclectic, but he just loved great classical movies. I don't know whether I could say this was his favorite movie of all time, but I do think, and he has said this many times, that uh, Tales of Hoffman had an enormous impact on him uh, when he was a young man. George was also a fan of horror and suspense comics. They were normally tales depicting graphic violence and tongue-in-cheek humor. The detailed artwork and twisted tales would take him to the deepest caves of the Congo and the icy deserts of the Antarctic. The escapism in these tales allowed children's imagination to run wild, and George kept that influence throughout his career. Those of us who remember those comics, they were gruesome, and they had they were morality tales, but they all had this kind of wink-wink humor to them, which was, we're kind of getting away with something here, we're kind of making fun of things here, and I think that any good storytelling needs to have a rhythm to it so that you're not completely just on one note through the whole. It's it's like good music. Good music has crescendos and decrescendos, and uh, it has moments of great activity and then slow things down. I think that's that's true in movie making, too. You want to have an opportunity to lighten it up. And uh, I think the scares are scarier if you have a moment of lightness either to precede them or to follow them. It makes the, the whole storytelling more dynamic. When I was a kid, we used to go to see these movies, The Blob and Them, and half the fun was getting scared out of your wits and then laughing that you were so scared out of your wits. George attended film school at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. After graduation, George and a few friends stayed in the Pittsburgh area and started a small production company called Image 10. They worked on commercials, sports documentaries, and company promotional films. One of George's first gigs was for the local children's television show called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Back in the day, uh, 
we were not in Hollywood, of course. So when you had a, a filmmaking aspirations in, in a place like Pittsburgh, you did a lot of different kinds of work just to uh, to stay busy and to earn a living. And George and his partners at Leighton Image did everything from news clips to commercials to industrials. And uh, remember, this was all back in the day of film. And so you had to shoot, if you were doing news, for example, you had to shoot the news thing and get it over to a lab, get it printed and back to the television station in time for the evening news. He, uh, he did, uh, short films for Mr. Rogers, uh, for Fred Rogers, for his television show. Commercial work was paying the bills and keeping his friends busy, but it wasn't enough. George and his friends were aching to do more creative things. They made short films with no budget, relying on favors from friends. George liked making movies with a message. One of uh, George's earliest films we are trying to restore right now with the Romero Foundation called The Amusement Park, which was a short film. Well, actually, it wasn't short. It was an hour-long film for the Lutheran Society about the difficulties of aging. And what was really interesting about it was that instead of just doing sort of a documentary of elderly people and the difficulties they had uh, in society, he created this whole story about a man who goes into an amusement park. And it becomes almost a horror story because of the way he's treated and ignored as a uh, kind of a a metaphor and a fable for, for the difficulties of aging. One evening in a diner. George talked to his friend and colleague, John Russo, about making a feature-length film. They figured if they could get 10 of their friends together and pitch in $600 each, they would have enough to make it. A horror film would give them the creative freedom in the lower budget. John and George got cracking on a script. They chose the undead as their subject because they could recruit their friends to play them. Night of the Living Dead was Romero's homage to horror film greats like Alfred Hitchcock and Vincent Price. It was shot in black and white, mostly at night. The film centers around a group of people boarding themselves into a farmhouse as the world descends into undead chaos. It was a scary time. America was full of uncertainty and rage. Civil rights were dividing the country. The Vietnam War was stealing the younger generation, and the older generation were scared of the beginnings of a free love movement they didn't understand. This was the birth of Romero's zombie tradition, a stark, satirical look at what was happening in society set in a harsh and brutal apocalyptic setting. However, George never called his creations zombies. He called them ghouls. And I don't think that he set out to create a zombie tradition. He would have told you that uh, one of his inspirations was uh, the Matheson novel, I Am Legend. And I think back in the day, horror was a kind of a genre that had certain commercial potential, drive-in movie potential. (laughs) And... It didn't rely necessarily on having huge budgets. It didn't rely necessarily on having huge movie stars in it. So it seemed probably uh, an easy choice to let's make a let's make a horror movie. And he and his partners created the story 
as I say, was influenced by I Am Legend about an apocalyptic situation. And uh, it's interesting. People would say, well, how come what made the zombies become zombies? And if you think back on it, there's never in George's mythology anyway, there's never any real explanation for what caused the zombies to exist. All that happens is we are dropped into a world where the dead are coming back to life. And there's no explanation for why necessarily. There's a lot of speculation, and that's part of the fun. But I think that uh, they just wanted to create a good, scary movie. He always wanted his films to have something to say. And I think everybody acknowledges that even his zombie movies had social commentary in them while being entertaining and being full of the genre tropes and, and scary and gory and all of that stuff, they had something to say. And I think that that was always uh, George's intention. It was bold and unheard of to have a black actor as the lead in your film at the time, especially cast as the hero. But George had no intention of making his lead a comment on society. Dwayne Jones was just the best actor for the part. He said many times that the in Night of the Living Dead, he didn't cast the black actor as the lead on purpose. That fellow was just the best actor that auditioned for the part. He wasn't trying to make a statement. But I, I do think that he would say that in Dawn of the Dead, for sure, he was making a commentary about the consumer society. And certainly in Day of the Dead, he was making commentary about the disintegration of uh, a uh, society of people trapped in a uh, in a world and how rather than coming together they were driving each other apart i think that was definitely intentional the film was an unexpected success it was recognized for its original gore its risky choices and its reflection on society romero wasn't an overnight success but he was beginning to be recognized as more than a commercial director. He branched out and continued to make original stories for more low-budget films, but he kept coming back to his old friends, the zombies. His tastes and his abilities were pretty broad. Um, right after Night of the Living Dead, he made several more movies, and uh, they were not zombie movies at all. So he was... Um, a filmmaker of much broader talents than simply the zombie mythology would have you believe. The ghouls or the zombies in all of the dead movies, they are us. I think the success of the first one led obviously to Dawn of the Dead, which was such a big hit that the uh, then the thing took on a life of its own. Just before Dawn, of course, George had made Martin, which was a vampire movie. It had nothing to do with zombies. But it was a critical hit, and um, people were comparing his work to Hitchcock at that point. But it was Dawn of the Dead and the massive success of that, which I think probably launched the whole uh, zombie tradition, the modern one. The Crazies is all about a bio-accident that causes the insanity. That's one of my favorite George movies, actually. But uh, again, preceded Dawn. So I, I, I don't know that George ever set out to become the godfather of zombies. In fact, I know that he didn't. He, uh, it was a circumstance that um, he would say, well, zombies have been very good to me. <laughs> so, 
John Harrison was an aspiring filmmaker in Boston. He loved Night of the Living Dead and wanted to learn more from the master. He found his production company in the phone book and rang them up. He was startled when Romero himself picked up the phone and introduced himself. But minutes later, he opened up the door to invite the movie mammoth in. Night of the Living Dead had come out, and I had seen it when I was living in Boston and uh, wanted to somehow meet him because uh, I figured anybody that could make a low-budget film like that that had such an impact, I really wanted to meet. And we discovered that he was doing a series of uh, sports documentaries with his then-partner Richard Rubenstein, and we called up his offices uh, to offer our services, expecting to speak to a secretary or somebody. And he answered the phone. And uh, we told him, we gave him our pitch. We told him what we had. And he said, well, where are you guys? And we said, well, we're down on Smithfield Street, which is a few blocks from where his offices were. And he said, well, look, I'll be there in five minutes. And he hung up and he came over to our offices. First of all, he walks in and he's six foot four or five, you know, <laughs> and he's this big bear of a guy and uh, saw some films that we had done and said, okay, let's work together. And that, that was the start of it. We ended up having a lot of fun. I mean, it wasn't just work either. That was the other thing. We'd spend a lot of time drinking and eating and hanging out. And so it wasn't all work and no play. Independent film was still very new, fresh, and inspiring. It was a blank canvas that allowed aspiring artists to create what they loved for very little money. The risk has always been that you may make a film, but there's no guarantee that anyone's going to see it. Back in the day, we're talking the early 70s, there really wasn't the uh, independent film communities that you think of now with IFC and with uh, the Weinstein Company and Miramax and Fox Searchlight. Those things didn't exist back then. Anybody that wanted to do independent filmmaking had to really cobble it together by hook or by crook. And that's what my partners and I were doing, and that's surely what George was doing. And uh, in Pittsburgh, there were a lot of us who just wanted to be in the film business. And uh, we gravitated to George because he was definitely the one doing it. And uh, he was so generous with his time and his approval and his willingness to work with people who had more desire than experience, I guess you'd say. Independent filmmaking was based on the beg, borrow, and steal financial system. Most small production companies knew each other and would help out. Romero was known for filming on one side of town and then wandering onto a set a few blocks away to have a chat with their cameraman. 20 minutes later, he'd have that cameraman helping him on his set. It was a barter system, and he was always happy to help out. We used to hang out together. We were all friends. And uh, George, being the kind of director that he was, wanted it to be fun. And uh, the kinds of films that we were making were fun. We took it very seriously as work, but we didn't take ourselves that seriously. <laughs> he was a very easygoing guy, a great sense of humor. He and I found that we shared a sense of humor, uh, finding things that were funny in just about anything. But he was um, casual in his uh, sort of approach to people, but very serious about his work. And um, my first impressions were that uh, he had a really good idea of exactly what he wanted to do, and yet he was very collaborative. 
he wanted to work with you if you had something to offer. And um, he made it possible for you to provide that. And that was, uh, that was really terrific. Coming up, we'll find out how strong John and George's friendship is after Romero impales him in the head with a screwdriver. This episode of A Life Lived is brought to you by The Economist. The Economist is far more than just economics and finance. For 170 years, it's been covering a range of subjects from politics, business, science, technology, the arts, and so much more, including my favorite, horror films. Really? I've been doing a little digging through The Economist archive, and there's a great piece from March of this year about why so many of the protagonists in horror films are mothers. I even found a think piece from around a decade ago building on the theory that George Romero's Night of the Living Dead isn't just a straight zombie flick. It's a satire of American consumer capitalism. I mean, The Economist is the smart guide to the forces changing your world. So, if you've never stopped asking questions, get your free copy now by texting the word LIVED to 78070. That's L-I-V-E-D to 78070. We're also sponsored this week by Quip. So here's a question for you. What makes a better toothbrush? Is it industrial strength and power? Multiple modes and Bluetooth connectivity? If you ask your dentist... They'll tell you it's less about the brush itself and more about how you use it. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association, and it's backed by over 25,000 dental professionals. I mean, Quip comes with a built-in timer. It pulses every 30 seconds, so you can guarantee that you'll have a nice even clean for that all-important two minutes of brushing. You won't be cleaning your teeth with stinky old toothbrush heads either. Nope. Quip automatically delivers new ones to your door every three months for just five bucks. I mean, the sleek, intuitive design, it's its simple to use. And it comes with a travel cap that doubles as a mirror mount, which, you know, kudos. Plus, there are no wires, no clunky charger, none of that. It runs on a single charge for three months. Quip starts at just... $25 and you'll get the first refill for free at getquip.com slash lived. Help form fresh oral health habits and start brushing better with Quip today. Go to quip.com slash lived and get your first refill for free. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash L-I-V-E-D. John Harrison worked with George Romero on many projects. George found out about John's musical background and asked his help in scoring his first zombie hit, Dawn of the Dead. He would add a comedic beat to a mall full of zombie consumers. Late one night on set, George called his friend in for help. I was sitting at home one night and I got a call from Zilla Clinton, who was my partner Pat Booba's wife, and uh, she was George's production manager on Dawn. And she said, hey, listen, um, 
what are you doing tonight? And I said, well, I'm just uh, getting ready for tomorrow's pitch. I've got a meeting at one of the big banks in Pittsburgh because my company is trying to land a commercial there. So I got to be, you know, I got to be ready for that. I got to meet this vice president. She said, well, look, could you come out to the mall where we were shooting, where they were shooting Dawn of the Dead? We've got a gag that we need to do to solve a continuity problem. It'll take an hour. Just come on out and just do this for fun. I said, OK. So I went out there and George explained to me what he needed to do. Uh, those of you who are familiar with Dawn of the Dead will know the scene. Scotty Reininger is uh, running through J.C. Penney's and... Uh, in one shot, he's approaching the camera, and then he's attacked by a uh, zombie that we thought was a mannequin who struggles with him and rips off his sweater. And the problem was, in the way George shot it, he had shot Scotty approaching with the sweater on and running away with the sweater off. So he had to come up with a reason why Scotty didn't have the sweater on. And that was me. So Tom Savini the makeup effects genius put me in the chair and said, this is how we're going to do it. Explained the gag to me, made me up nine o'clock became 10 o'clock became 11 o'clock became 12 o'clock. And by about two in the morning, they finally called me to the set and we did the gag. I rushed home in time to get a shower and get downtown to make my pitch. And the vice president of this bank is sitting there staring at me and he's looking at me kind of weird. And I'm going through my, my song and dance. And he says, are you all right? I said, yeah, what's the matter? And he said, well, you got blood coming out of your ear. <laughs> I hadn't gotten it all done. But anyway, I explained it to him and he thought it was great. He wanted to see if he could be a zombie, <laughs> come out and do a, do a bit. And our company got the job. So it was a success. But that's how I became the screwdriver zombie. It had great visual effects that had not been seen in a movie before. George and Richard put it out unrated so that it could have all of the gruesome effects untouched and uncensored. It had great humor. It obviously was more expansive than Night of the Living Dead, but it had this wonderful undertone of social commentary about being trapped in a, a mall with all of the consumer goods you could ever possibly want and uh, basically living the end of the world in a place like that. Quite by accident, but yes, and probably one of the things I'm best known for, uh, ironically, I was the screwdriver zombie. John didn't take the impaling screwdriver personally. In fact, he had the pleasure of working alongside George as his first assistant director and composer for the horror film classic Creepshow and the third installment in Romero's zombie movie series, Day of the Dead. Because I had this unusual relationship with him as a, I was his first assistant director. So I was with him day in and day out making Creepshow and Day of the Dead. But it was a fantastic opportunity as a musician to talk to him about what he wanted in the movie. So that when we got into post and I was scoring it, I had had this weeks long, uh, months long proximity to him day in and day out to listen to his thoughts and hear about what, what he was going for, um, which informed the music. And then to be included in the entire mixing process um, on Creepshow, for example, I actually brought the Prophet 5 music synthesizer that I'd had and used to compose a lot of the music onto the stage so that if there was a moment where we needed a little interstitial piece or something like that, I could play it right on the stage. 
and the guys could mix it right into the movie. I mean, this is unusual in filmmaking, and uh, but I had that opportunity. George encouraged it, and uh, so those are some of my fondest memories, absolutely. It's always making it up as you go, and um, but that's part of the fun of it because you can see, you sit there and you you know I'm fond of saying that you write a movie three times. You write it when you write it, you write it when you direct it, and you write it when you edit it. And each one of those processes is storytelling. Each one of those processes is writing, in a sense. And the fun part of taking what George wrote on the page and then putting it together with different artists. Uh, the production designer, the cinematographer, um, the actors, the special effects guys, and getting it on stage and seeing it come to life in a way that even George couldn't have anticipated, but pulled together this crew of people because he knew that they would come up with it. That's really what filmmaking is all about. That's the fun of it. And then to get it into the editing room and put it together in ways that maybe you weren't thinking about when you wrote it or when you directed it. That's really uh, the fun of the whole thing, the whole process. Romero may have imbibed in his dark side for work, but offset, he was a fun-loving bear of a guy. He would treat his inner child with trips to the theater and to Disneyland. He loved Disneyland. He loved amusement parks. He would take his daughter Tina to Disneyland every year, Disney World. He loved Disneyland. <laughs> What can I say? <laughs> I think he loved the fantasy of it. I think he loved the parallel universe of it. I think he, he uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think he was an, a, uh, a, uh, an amusement park aficionado, like I'm going to ride every roller coaster there is. He, that's not the kind of place he liked. He liked Disneyland. He and Suzanne used to love to go to uh, Stratford in Canada to see Shakespeare every year. Um, they would go to the plays. He loved musical theater. He loved theater in general. So I think I think he'd he'd probably be happier just if everybody was thinking about some of his stuff and laughing along with him. George was ahead of his time when he was improvising special effects for his films with no budget. But as technology crept up on him, he couldn't get his head around it. George, he was not a technophobe, but he didn't. You know, he, he didn't really, he had a cell phone, but he never used it. He never really dealt with email. He had somebody else do that for him. So he didn't know how to use an Uber. And I got him into an Uber to get him and Suzanne back to the hotel. And the Uber driver completely screwed up the address and drove him to Santa Monica instead of to his hotel. That warned George off of Uber for the rest of his life. In the late 80s, zombies fell silent. The public was no longer ravenous for the undead. Romero's close friend and special effects designer Tom Savini brought the horde back for a remake of the iconic Night of the Living Dead. It was a success and showed that the craving for flesh-eating monsters never went away. We did Day, which was George's last horror film, our last zombie film until Land of the Dead in 1985. And then George... In the 90s, he was doing uh, more dramatic horror movies like uh, The Dark Half and um, Monkey Shines. I think that the real zombie resurgence started probably not so much in the 90s, but in the 2000s, and especially once Walking Dead became such a huge hit. Kurtzman's novel, graphic novels, really 
sort of set that off and uh, certainly uh, revived it. And I think everybody at that point paid homage to what George had done. But it was a uh, it was a period of time where I'd, I'm not sure. At, uh, you got to remember when Day of the Dead came out, it was not hugely successful. Um, it was a very dark vision. It didn't have a lot of the outrageous humor that Don did, and I think some people had expected that it would. So it wasn't quite as successful. It's now become very successful. It's kind of a cult favorite among the the dead. Uh, oeuvre, if you will. You know, these things go in cycles. I'm not really sure why um, zombie apocalypse has become such a, a huge phenomenon again. Uh, maybe it's just the world we live in and the uh, the pressures on society uh, that make us all feel like we are zombies sometimes. <laughs> I don't know. George fought a long and aggressive battle with lung cancer and passed away on July 16th, 2017. Romero's friend John was lucky to see him shortly before he died. George and I had remained friends for right up till the end, and uh, I, was, I went up to see him the week before he passed. It was, a, it was really uh, a tragedy. <laughs> I mean, he was 77 years old, so it wasn't like he was a spring chicken, but he, had, he was still sharp as a tack right up until the end, and we, all, we kept talking about plans for other stuff. It's tragic in the sense that that was all interrupted, but uh, personally, it's uh, just a loss because he was such a friend and a mentor for my entire career. George was a pure lover of films and wanted nothing more than to make them. His fun-loving nature and creepy creatures created a culture of horror films that have inspired generations. He will forever be the godfather of zombies. Well, I think that genre filmmaking and the acceptance of it as, as serious filmmaking would not have been the same without George. The zombie mythology that he created allowed people to look at that kind of genre filmmaking in a way that really people hadn't before. I mean, there are the great classic horror movies, which we all love and adore. But in the modern era, the influence of uh, George's movies is pretty much everywhere. I mean, just the other day, I was watching Stranger Things. And in the opening scene of this season, Stranger Things, where are the kids going? They're going to see Day of the Dead in the movie theaters. So it's ubiquitous. I don't think The Walking Dead exists without George Romero. So in terms of filmmaking, I think that, uh, and I think that he would be acknowledged by others in the genre, Del Toro and, and uh, the younger guys that have come along. They, would, they have all acknowledged him as an inspiration. So I think that's his legacy for sure. I guess if somebody said to me, I don't know who George Romero is and I don't understand what his, why he has this reputation, I would simply say, first of all, watch Dawn of the Dead and see how much fun that was as that kind of movie. And then take it from there and start to watch some of his other movies and uh, then look around at the movies that are currently out there and uh, you'll see the influence. I would say that... Uh, Listen, I knew George personally, and we had a great relationship, and I knew him as a person and could talk endlessly about him. But I think his work is, um, is how you could also get to know him. If you've never heard of him before, uh, even if you're not a film buff, 
but you want to know what his cultural impact was, I'd say start with Dawn of the Dead and go from there. John Harrison is reprising his role as director in the new horror series Creepshow, available on Shudder. Next time on A Life Lived. She could have gone into any studio, any cathedral, any location. She wanted to record this album. She wanted to record it in this church in Los Angeles, in Watts. As you could tell, it wasn't a packed audience. It wasn't like word got out until night two that Aretha was on the other side of town, you know, recording this album. And I think that speaks to what she, as a artist and again, as a professional really said, hey, I wanna deliver something that is authentic, that is that has a, a certain space of connectivity and that really, you know, not just record music that is gospel music, but I want it to be spirit-filled, spirit-led. Terrell Whitley talks to us about the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, and what it was like making the documentary film Amazing Grace. This is an Audio Boom original production by Muddy Knees Media and Breaking Stereotypes. This podcast was presented and executive produced by me, Stephanie Okupniak, assistant produced by Paige Waller. If there is an icon that you would like to know more about, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram using the handle at a underscore.